0: Welcome to Episode 3 in our series, How to Build an Integrated Health and Care System. In each episode of this series, we will be examining a particular feature of integrated systems and how you go about practically applying some of the lessons from successful leaders around the world. I'm Dr David Hambleton, your horse and guide on this journey. I have spent over 30 years working in the NHS in various guises, as consultant physician, director, chief executive, and I am acutely aware of how difficult it is to promote true integration and collaboration among health and care partners. The COVID-19 pandemic has sent shockwaves through this country and across the entire globe, of course. As we in the UK move into a different phase to focus on recovery and living with the virus, in this episode we turn our attention to recovering from disasters and the lessons we can learn from places that have had, in some instances, some horrific events and how they have used them as an opportunity to enhance and improve the health of not only their system but their population. Earlier this year, the King's Fund published a paper looking at the key challenges that the pandemic and other disasters pose for systems. The four key messages were about 1 putting mental health and well-being at the forefront of recovery efforts, 2 ensuring communities are not left behind, 3 making collaboration work, and 4 prioritizing workforce well-being. We will explore some of these and as usual talk to senior leaders about some of the approaches that have been deployed in response to disasters, natural and man-made, across the world. Our first conversation today is with a by now familiar expert, that of Carolyn Gullery, former General Manager of Planning, Funding and Analytics at Canterbury District Health Board.
1: We did have, as a health system, we did get presented with an unusual opportunity, which I think in the United Kingdom now, that same opportunity exists. We faced a major natural disaster, literally overnight. I mean, Canterbury was, well, it wasn't overnight, really. It was in the middle of the day. Canterbury was exploded by a large earthquake that took out our infrastructure. It took out our power, our water, our sewage. It injured a lot of people. It killed a lot of people. And we were faced with the most significant shock that you could imagine for a health system. And that was the time when our commitment to it's about the patients and we're going to do the right thing uh, came to the fore. But it was also our opportunity to prove that we were serious. So in a way, having that natural disaster, although it probably held us back a couple of years in our transformation, in other ways is it accelerated it. Because what everybody who hadn't been part of the process up until that point, although we'd started that process maybe three years earlier, what they saw was the leadership of the District Health Board backing 100%. This is about backing the people who are doing the job on the ground. Whatever we need to do, to make sure that you can continue to deliver the care to the population of Canterbury, we're going to do. So after the earthquakes in Canterbury, the Canterbury District Health Board was rated by the population of Canterbury as their most trusted government organisation. Because the people of Canterbury knew that the Canterbury District Health Board was there to support them. Because we saw that as really important in the uncertainty after a major natural disaster like that. We needed to make sure that the population of Canterbury understood that health care was still there. So what we did, because we were in, we'd lost a hundred plus beds out of our acute hospital. We'd also lost six or seven hundred beds in our long-term care of the elderly. We'd lost um, a number of pharmacies, we'd lost five general practices. One, all of the staff and some of the patients had been killed because it was one of the general practices that was in a building that collapsed. And there, were, there literally was no power, no water and no sewerage across the whole of the city. So we needed to focus on keeping people well and keeping them out of the hospital wherever we could. We rang up general practice leadership and said, we need you to go free. As I said, New Zealand, general practice isn't free. So literally rang them up at midday on the day after the earthquake and said, we need general practice to go free. Can we do that? We'll figure out the money later. We'll sort out how to make sure general practice doesn't lose in this process. But can you do that? An hour later, all of general practice in Canterbury was free. And we were able to tell the population of Canterbury, if you need healthcare, your general practice is there for you. It won't cost you anything. And that's what trust is about.
0: That's an incredible change to be able to make in the face of a natural disaster, and I'm guessing that you would have had very little chance of being able to enact that if you hadn't built up probably years of trust with your general practice, primary care in general. So you were reaping the rewards, I guess, of the investment that you'd made in terms of trusting those individuals.
1: It does come back to trust. They knew that we would come to a reasonable answer about how to support general practice, But that kind of trust, as you said, takes time to build, but it comes back to, again, being consistent, always doing what you say you're going to do and always putting the values at the centre of your conversation because this is about Collective impact. This is about all of us believing, having a shared sense of purpose. And if you are going to transform any system, the place you have to start is that shared sense of purpose. And it's not about mission statements. And some of the other things that we all see, it's a shared sense of purpose that we've built together, that we know what it is. One of the things that people frequently say about the Canterbury system is if you go and visit the Canterbury Health System, everybody says the same thing. If you ask them, well, you yeah, know, what's the vision, they'll tell you. <laughs> It's so deeply ingrained and I think that's when I started to realise that we were really making a difference, was when frontline clinicians would tell me what the strategy of the organisation was and tell me why we were doing it that way.
0: Yeah, that's pretty unbelievable. And having been and seen that firsthand, it it is quite strange to see it. It's not the usual way that people behave in a health system, but yes, I agree. I just want to turn back briefly to the disasters that you've lived through, because you didn't just have one earthquake, of course. you've, You've lived through several. You've described nicely, I think, the acute response, which I think stretched across the whole of your system, In terms of the longer term impacts and the longer term learnings that you've had from your experience of natural disasters, what else would you like to share with us from from that perspective, Carolyn?
1: So this is when having a system that works on trust, that is open and transparent, that resource allocates to where it needs to to deliver the best possible outcomes for the patients becomes absolutely critical. Because what we were able to do with the Canterbury system is redesign it on a dime, you know, literally by the hour. And the way I like to think about how we built the Canterbury health system is we built a series of platforms, enabling platforms that enable a health system to adapt, make it agile because we're dealing with wicked problems. And in our case, not only did we have the normal problems of health and social care, we got some extra ones such as major earthquakes, which, yes, you're quite right, happened more than once, and Port Hill fires, and in fact, even a man-made disaster in terms of a, a major shooting attack known as the mosque attack. What we were able to do because of the way the system works is adapt on the fly. Now, that, again, that's what a high-reliability organisation is about. It's about an organisation that can see what's going on, can see what's happening, and knows how to apply different solutions to make a difference. So underneath all of that are a series of platforms. Now, some of those platforms are digital. So Canterbury has a shared health record that's shared across everyone. So if you're a clinician in Canterbury, you can access the shared health record for the patient that you're looking after in front of you right now. So that deals with that problem I raised earlier, which is about communication. The biggest failure in health systems is communication. And that's communication at a system level. It's also communication down at an individual patient level. It amazes me now, having worked in a system that had a fully shared health record, how it is that we keep on thinking we can provide care to patients when we don't know anything about them. Whereas after the earthquakes, that the earthquakes were the catalyst for that. Although we wanted one, we couldn't get it across the line until people understood what happens when you have no power. And the only place in the whole of Canterbury that had power was the hospital. And general practice was trying to treat patients who didn't know what pharmaceuticals they were on, didn't know anything about their condition. And general practice couldn't access the records because it was somebody else's patient. So we learned that you needed to have a secure access to that information. So we had that. We had an electronic request management system deliberately designed to support general practice as that point of continuity. We had built an electronic request management system, and I deliberately say request, not referral, because actually it's about general practice requesting support for the patient that they're working with. Now, that enables referrals to the hospital, It enables referrals to diagnostics, and also community services, our acute admission avoidance program, all of that off a single platform. So all general ha- practice had to do was make a request. So if we wanted to expand it, we just kept on expanding it to include a broader and broader concept of an integrated health system. We had health pathways, which is something that we built out of that disaster of throwing 5,000 people off the waiting list and understanding that the key problem was nobody actually knew what the rules were. (laughs) The hospital-based system didn't know what general practice was doing and general practice didn't know what the hospital was doing. So we got everybody in a room and we agreed these were the pathways by which we were managing patient care in Canterbury. So that built a whole system of health pathways, which is actually just how we do it around here. It's an agreement between the hospital-based system In the primary care system about how we're going to do things. We could change that in response to the needing to redesign pathways at pace when we were in the midst of a disaster. And then we had a whole range of services. We had the acute admission avoidance program. We had community-based rehabilitation. A whole range of services that were not about a single small patient group Basically, I almost describe it now as, it was like an a la carte menu for the clinicians. I have a patient in front of me. They look like this. They need this. Which bits of the menu am I going to pick to customise the response for this patient? And deliberately, that's how we design the system so that the clinicians and the patients together could come to an agreement about what it was that they needed that was going to help them stay well, stay healthy in their own home and not need to be in a hospital-based system.
0: You described really neatly there, Carolyn, how your system was built on a series of platforms and while what I'm hearing is that they definitely helped you survive and sustain through natural disasters, but some of them were born out of the disasters themselves. So the single health record actually was born out of the uh, one of the earthquakes. Throwing 5,000 people off the waiting list led to the development of health pathways. So it's, it sounds like you, you didn't waste a good crisis, to coin uh, the old phrase.
1: No, never waste a crisis. Crisis is an opportunity. But that's about how you how you approach a crisis. But to do that, what you need to have is that shared sense of purpose. The reason that the Canterbury Health System was able to respond so rapidly in the midst of, as I said, New Zealand's largest ever natural disaster, and then so rapidly in the midst of one of the world's biggest shooting attacks, which was the mosque attack, the reason they're able to do that is because we have a very strong sense of purpose. We know where we're going. We know what good looks like. So after the big February earthquake in Canterbury, we spent about a week just managing the consequences of the earthquake. And then we wrote the recovery plan. Keep in mind that the place was still shaking because <laughs> there were still plenty of aftershocks at that stage. I stepped aside and with a couple of other people, we went through the entire health system, we talked to primary care and hospital-based clinicians together, and we redesigned the health system and we wrote a recovery plan. Now, the reason that we could do that so quickly, because we had the first draft of it was out by the end of March, the reason we could do that so quickly was because we all knew where we were going. We all had a vision, we all knew what the system that we wanted looked like. So we all went, okay, let's just get there faster. So our vision was 2020. We're now going to make it vision 2011. And literally, that's what the recovery plan said. The recovery plan says we're going to stabilise the health system. So it described the actions we had to take to stabilise the system. Then we had to recover the system to get us through the winter because winter was coming. I mean, this this is New Zealand, February earthquake, Our peak is in the middle of the year, in the middle of winter, and winter was on its way. We were over 100 beds down in our acute hospital and we're down 700 beds in our um, long-term care of the elderly system. Uh, Winter was going to be pretty hard. So we came up with new ways of working. We accelerated our existing programs. We redesigned our hospital referral system. We shifted activity that had previously happened in a hospital into a community-based setting. And we did all of that in the space of weeks because we were all on the same page, going to the same place.
0: Our next stop in this journey is a fairly remote part of Canada, specifically lac Megantic, Quebec. On the 6th of July 2013, a 73-car freight train carrying crude oil rolled down an incline and derailed in the downtown area, resulting in a huge fire and multiple explosions. 47 people were killed. More than 30 buildings in the town centre, roughly half of the downtown area, were destroyed. And all but three of the 39 remaining buildings had to be demolished due to petroleum contamination, which created a major environmental hazard. Melissa Genever had started her job as director of public health three days earlier. A public health physician, associate professor at Schoenberg University, this was not the start she might have hoped for.
2: Uh, You know, to be perfectly honest, at the very beginning as the public health director, my attention was directed toward like the physical health risk, you know, we were talking about crude oil all over the place, so we needed to think about evacuation, vulnerable people, you know, that all that usual stuff that we have to deal with. I was about to say during a, a pandemic, but th- that, that's exactly what's happening with the pandemic, right? The public health is dealing with the, the threat, the immediate threat. But over the next uh, weeks, following the, the, the this uh, trend derailment, we just realized that the morale of the people around there was not so good. You know, we we felt that maybe we would have to face also some psychological issues, but we didn't know who first was responsible of this. So who's supposed to care about this morale that seems lower than than it used to be before the, 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 the crisis. And at the very beginning, we thought that maybe the the clinical settings would be responsible of dealing with this, you know, by adding some psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, GPs, you know, that kind of stuff. But then we realized that maybe the problem was more, was deeper than that. You know, it was, it was rooted into the community and maybe that some public health actions would also be required. So the the first thing that we did is first uh, to uh, document the situation on a much more objective uh, basis. So we conducted uh, several repeated uh, population surveys in Megantic and around Megantic so that we were able to uh, monitor the psychological health. And through these surveys, we really realized that our impression was true. So we discovered that very large parts of the local population were showing up signs of uh, depression, anxiety, and even post-traumatic stress disorders, uh, and also uh, higher levels of uh, alcohol consumption or uh, problems related to alcohol or cannabis. So with all these findings put together, we, we that's exactly where we realized that th- the public health had to deal indeed with the immediate threats posed by the, 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 the crisis, but we also had to deal with the longer-term psychosocial impacts that uh, were also co- caused by this tragedy.
0: Thanks, that's great. And I think you're right to draw the comparisons with our pandemic, because people are certainly focused on the immediate impact, but you've described really nicely that realization that actually you're in this for A, a longer haul, and B, looking at impacts which go beyond the immediate physical impact of the disaster. I wonder if you could say a few words about the use of sense of coherence because that's something I think was really interested to you to talk about.
2: Yeah you know when we conducted our first population health surveys and we discovered all these mental health problems that were very high in the local community you know at first sight people were not very happy about this and they were like okay so what's the point you know everything's going bad and you're just adding some other additional bad news so it's not really mobilizing for us you know it's not really empowering and that's exactly where we realized that to you know try finding the right solutions to support this uh, affected community we needed to work very closely with them you know because Who am I as the public health director to find out what's going to be the right solution to promote mental health over there? You know, it's not like I could add some uh, medication in the water so that everybody feels happier. You know, so we had to think out of the box and to work closely with the population. So uh, what we did is organizing a reflection day, a collective reflection day, uh, all together with several key partners in the community. And through this first reflection day, that's exactly where we worked on our collective sense of coherence. Because what we realized is that we needed to shift our approach from a negative approach to a much more positive one. So we needed, needed to shift from pathogenesis to salutogenesis. And salutogenesis is really a, a very, very inter- interesting concept or approach, which reminds us to focus on what creates well being and health rather than focusing on what creates disease and problems.
0: Thanks, Melissa. And I think just exploring that sense of coherence a little further, the, the idea is to get a, a feel for whether people can make sense of what they're experiencing at its very heart can you just say a few words about that
2: so the sense of coherence is really at the core of this very interesting approach which is called the salutogenesis uh, which invites us to focus on uh, positive uh, things or what creates health and well-being so the, the sense of coherence basically it can be um It applies at the individual level, but also at the collective levels. So at the individual levels, what what it is exactly, it's a, a psychological resource that we have that can really help us to face adversity or stressful situations. So in other words, people who would have a high level of sense of coherence are people who have this capacity to understand what's happening when they face stressful situations. So they understand They are are also able to make sense out of it, you know, make sense in such a way that they're not really accepting it, but they can thrive through it because they make sense in such a way that it's much more comfortable in the daily life. They, they just find back their daily uh, satisfaction with their life, you know? And then the third component of the sense of coherence is the capacity of people to manage the stressful situation and to manage successfully such uh, such stressful situations. You need to first identify what are your resources and you need to mobilize them, you know, so you need to be aware of existing resources and try to use them to uh, to face adversity. So understand, make sense, and manage the stressful situations are the three key components of the sense of coherence.
0: Is there any other lessons you think we can learn from what you've experienced, particularly with respect to how we're coming to terms with the pandemic at the stage we're at?
2: Um, there's so many lessons, but I think that just, Really thinking out of the box, just try to say, okay, this is clearly an unusual situation. So, when facing such unusual situations, we need to find out solutions that are also unusual. We need to work much more closely with the, the citizens and the local partners that are not within the health and social services sectors so that we can be influenced by their thinkings and their ideas. Because the, the one thing that I really realize is that really, who are we to decide what's going to be helpful to promote mental health when facing such unusual situation? We need to accompany the local community and to realize that they have the solution. They, maybe they just need some push and some help from the health and social services sector, but basically they have the solutions, they have the resources and the capacities, and they just need to be empowered. And maybe they just need maybe some additional resources so that they can apply or implement all their very interesting and nice ideas. So give more power to the communities, listen much more to the communities and work with them rather than for them.
0: These real life experiences from New Zealand and Canada underline some of the messages contained within the King's Fund paper mentioned earlier. What I also took from these conversations about lived experiences were these messages. Firstly, the immediate aftermath of any disaster is easier if system players trust each other already. If you have spent time developing trust and building relationships, then continue to reinforce this throughout and beyond the disaster. If this hasn't been a strength, then use the opportunity to start to make that progress. Secondly, do not underestimate the psychological impact of any disaster. Anxiety and depression will be common, even if you don't see it. If possible, you should take steps to look for it and measure it, to both ensure that it's the focus of conversations and also so that you can monitor how much progress you are making. Third, work with your communities. You should allow time for reflection. Do not assume that you know how people will respond to disasters, and also that you know what they need. Fourth, a sense of coherence. The ability to make sense of a situation is an important indicator of how people are able to cope with disasters of all varieties and you can help with this. Listen to what is going on and help people to come together. Finally, salutogenesis. Taking an assets-based approach and focusing on what is still great about a particular community is far more likely to result in faster and deeper recovery. I believe these key pieces of learning are exactly what we should be listening to now as we move from the absolute peak of COVID-19 in the UK. At every opportunity, leaders should be looking at the evidence to indicate where they should focus their energies. We should be careful not to jump straight back to getting back to normal and recovering some of the lost ground in particular areas, such as waiting times for elective procedures. Whilst it is understandable that we would not want any patient to wait longer than absolutely necessary for treatments that are needed, there are also deeper considerations too. The pandemic has left scars as deep as the Lac-Megantic oil fires and as profound as the Canterbury earthquakes and mosque attacks. Health inequalities are worsening, staff morale in health and care never under greater strain. System leaders need to maintain their focus on mental health, working with communities and really focusing on looking after our workforce. All of this being underpinned by truly working collaboratively. As we continue our journey of exploration of what works for health systems at a practical level, in our next episode, we look at using data every day and explore how to put the good use of data at the heart of running a system. If you want to chat more about integrated health systems, you can find me on Twitter at David Hambleton or visit dhleadershipalliance.co.uk. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Health Pathways. Join us next time as we continue our exploration of how to build an integrated health and care system. Goodbye.